There has been so many things that try to keep me from this pulpit today, and thank you so much for providing the pulpit as a physical support. But I'm so glad that I was able to make it because I've been, there are just some things I want to share and things I want to say, and, and I pray that, that God help me today, that he give me the words, that he give me the message, and that hopefully you hear something today that you can take home, that you can hold on to. So I, please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, you know what it took for me to get here, and I pray that now that I stand here, that you use me. Not my thoughts, but your thoughts. Not my words, but your words. And help me speak to your people who are here today. In your name I pray. Amen. Oh, well, growing up, you know, there are some people like my husband who've always known what they wanted to be when they grew up. He was playing with computers from the time he was like two years old, taking him apart and learning where the pieces went. But me, I was not that kid. <laughs> my dad told me that when I was a little kid that I wanted to be a doctor. I said, I want to be a doctor when I grow up. And then I discovered that it involved shots and blood and things that I wanted nothing to do with. And so, okay, that's not it for me. What's next? What's next? And every year, something new. What do I want to be this year? And for a while, I said, I want to be a missionary because I thought that was a really good answer. And people were always impressed as a little six-year-old. They said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I would say, I want to be a missionary, but not really sure what that meant yet. And when I got older and I realized it meant I would have to leave behind, you know, my home and all the things that I loved here, okay, well, maybe I'm not cut out for hard living like that, but maybe there's something else I could be, and every year something new, and I started getting older and considered being a teacher, you know, maybe biology, maybe math, and then in high school we had one of those career fairs, and I'm like, oh, I'll be an occupational therapist, and that was exciting for a while, I thought that was cool, you know, or speech pathologist, or working with kids with learning disabilities, and this one summer I was a uh, research assistant at the Loma Linda University working on helping find a cure for cancer and that was exciting for six months and <laughs> every year something different every year no clue what I was going to be when I grew up and then I remember this this moment um, the year I turned well the year I was going to turn 16 I grew up in, in the La Sierra area at the La Sierra University Church. And some of you who are older will remember when the subject of women's ordination came up. And there were debates, and there were people arguing on both sides why women should and why women shouldn't be ordained, why they shouldn't be acknowledged as pastors the same way that men are. And I went, and I read the pamphlets, and I, and I cried, and I talked to my dad, and I talked to Pastor Dan, and I talked to teachers, and when they had this big meeting where the whole church was there and microphones lined up and people came up to, to give their perspective, I went and I stood and, and I shared my conclusions about women being pastors and how we're all called, you know, and it's our job as a church to acknowledge that and support the people who have a calling from God. And so when the church decided that they were going to ordain these two women pastors who had been there forever, I think it was because of that that they asked me to participate. So me, 16-year-old with all these really old people, but just so overwhelming and exciting, they asked me to um, read Mary's song. It's like a poetry that she reads after she finds out that, you know, she's pregnant with Jesus and so I got to learn it, and I did it in English and Spanish, and it was cool, and it was exciting, but 
there was this moment when it was all over and I'm sitting there on the front row and the whole church has come up to lay hands on these two women pastors who are praying and I remember this feeling that came over me that was exciting and almost scary but just overwhelming every cell of my body knew I was exactly where I was supposed to be at that moment. And I was filled with the sense that God had plans for me. Plans that I knew nothing about, and I didn't fully understand at that moment, but I knew I was exactly where I was supposed to be and that God had plans. And at 16 years old, I knew And it didn't prepare me for what came next, and it didn't prepare me for the ups and downs that were coming as I tried to figure out what my calling was and what that meant. But I look back at that moment when I struggle now, you know, when life is uncertain and things don't turn out the way you expect, and I can always look back to that moment at 16 years old where I knew that God had called me. And no matter what anybody said, I had that, that they couldn't take away. This experience that I had with God that was personal, that was real to me. And so now we're launching this new series. You know, we've had this last series. We're talking about, you know, I am the church. Is this each of you guys saying, I am the church, which in turn becomes, we are the church. So yes, we are the church. Every single one of us are the church. But now what? You know, where do we go from here? What does that mean, we are the church? Yes, we take ownership of our church, but how do we know what God has planned for us? How do we know what God wants for us, how he's going to lead us? And much in the way where, you know, I look back at my life at this moment where I was so sure, here is a church we can look back to. We can look back at this early church that it was a remarkable church when you think about it just starting out, I mean, they had Jesus, and they saw Jesus, and they met Jesus, and and then they had to figure out what that meant now. Jesus is gone. He's left. What do we do? How do we still know what he wants for us? When he was here and telling us, that's easy. But now that he's gone, they had to learn how the Spirit led. So I want you to grab a Bible in the pews, everybody, or on your phone. I have mine on my iPad here. But we're going to do this. We're going to look in Acts 1. We're going to start. And I'm going to do a quick overview of how, what happened, the highlights of this early church. We'll go more into depth over the coming weeks. But I want to talk about what this looked like and these big events that happened as this church was starting to come together. So we start in chapter 1. And um, Jesus is still here. You know, this is by... Um, Dr. Luke, who wrote, you know, the book of Luke as well. He's writing it to a friend as he's telling all these stories about Jesus. So he finished his last book, you know, where Jesus had died and risen from the dead. So he's starting his second book called Acts of the Apostles. He's talking about basically the history of the church. So he's introducing himself here, and then we get down to verse 4. And this is Jesus giving some of his last words to his disciples. And he tells them, you know, as he's eating with them and he's been spending time with them, he says, don't leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift that he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So these are one of the last big messages Jesus left. He says, wait, 
I know you guys are excited. I know that you have ownership and you've seen amazing things, but wait. Before you go running ahead, before you make the big decisions, before you go telling people everything, wait. Because something needs to happen first. You need the Holy Spirit to guide you. You know the, the expression that fools run in where angels fear to tread? <laughs> um, I don't think it's necessarily like that, but sometimes I feel like when we're excited about things that you know, we feel God wants, we run as quickly as possible without waiting for him to actually guide us. And I've had times in my life where I've definitely done that. Um, I spent a few months in San Francisco where we were going to do a church plant there for, for young adults. And it was an exciting thing, and I was so convinced this is what God wanted me to do because all the signs pointed to going to this church and meeting up with these people who randomly talked to people who said that I needed to go. And so I ran and so excited to be there. And then I got there, and I'm like, okay, I don't think this is what he had in mind. And it was definitely a learning experience, and I think God takes advantage of those learning experiences we have when we make those mistakes, but it gives us a chance to grow. But when we stop and we listen, Jesus tells us, wait. I have plans, yes, I have plans, but wait for the Holy Spirit to guide you. Um, And so that's one of his messages he's talking, and there's things about him coming back. And finally, after these 40 days go by, they get to watch him go back up into the clouds. And they're just looking as he leaves. This is verse 11. They're staring up at the sky where Jesus left not moving. They're just waiting. And some angels go, okay, you can keep looking for him, but don't keep staring into the heaven. Why are you there standing into the heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way that you saw him go. So Jesus told them, wait, but the angel said, we're not just waiting for Jesus to come back. We're not letting him do all the work. There's still stuff for us to do here. So go, go back into Jerusalem. Go wait, go pray for the Holy Spirit to come. But here as Adventists, we believe that God is coming soon, but there's definitely a work for us to do before he does that. And so they head back into Jerusalem. And the first thing they do in Jerusalem is try to decide to replace one of the 12 disciples, you know, because Judas is gone now, and they feel like there should be 12 because it's a good number. And, and I find it exciting, even though it just sounds like one of these committees that you have in church where it's like a nominating committee and everyone submits the names, and, you know, you go around, you talk about the people, and then you vote. But if you think about it, this is one of the first decisions the early church gets to make, you know, that they pray about and they talk about, and they're trying to decide, you know, what God wants for them to do as they make a big decision. You know, and they pick their criteria for replacing the disciples, and they pick this guy who may never be mentioned again in the Bible, but is still significant because he was there, this guy whose name had never been mentioned before, Matthias, but was there from the very beginning, spent all these years with Jesus and and witnessed it all and gets to be called one of these disciples as one of the original witnesses of Jesus' life. And then we get into chapter 2, which is where the exciting stuff starts happening. The Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. And I just find this exciting. So they spend all these days up in this upper room here at the beginning of chapter 2 praying. And then one day, the Spirit comes. And this is something I kind of wish would happen now. It's like when the Spirit came, you really knew. It's not like you just suspect it. But there's fire 
and flames and power, and, and you see it over the people around you. You can see that we're all filled with the Holy Spirit, and there's just no doubt about it. And, oh, sometimes I envy these people who get to be back there and see it firsthand. They got to see Jesus. They got to know Jesus. And they got to see the Holy Spirit and not have a doubt that he had come, that he had blessed them. And then immediately after that happens, he starts proving it, you know? Because the, Peter goes and preaches this sermon, this amazing sermon that well, 3,000 baptized in verse 41, that one day, as he talks about the whole story, Jesus coming, Jesus dying for us, being claimed. And, but not just any normal sermon, because I don't even think it's just the content, but the fact that he could preach and everybody understood him in their own language. Because this is Passover time. Everybody's there. They haven't gone back home yet after all the festivities. So people from all over the known world, you know, they're saying, you know, dozens of languages. And he's talking, and they all understand him. And that's just, oh, my goodness, I'll, I'll tell you this story. <laughs> um, I have a friend who does student missions at La Sierra University. Her name's Linda. So she sends out student missionaries every year for the big ones, you know, they go all year round, and then they do short-term missions over the summer. And so she had a friend, and she went down with a group of people to Mexico to do just some small evangelistic series. And um, they had translators who went, because obviously all these kids mostly spoke English. But at one of the last services of this week, where, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of people there, the translator didn't show up. And so um, the speaker for that night was there, and terrified. He's like, you know, I've taken Spanish one and two, but I don't really know Spanish. I can't preach this sermon, you know. But he went up there anyways, and he preached his sermon, you know, with conviction, you know, God, you know, help me, fill me, just let these people understand what I'm saying. And um, when it was all down, you know, they went and talked to the deacon, and the deacon comes up. He's like, I did not know you spoke Spanish that well. That was the most beautiful sermon I've ever heard. And I remember hearing the story, and I'm like, nah, that didn't really happen. <laughs> and she's like, no, you don't understand, Amanda. I was talking to him when he came back. It happened, you know? And oh, my goodness, it's just, it happens. That the Spirit can speak, and words are just words, but it's the Spirit talking through you in a language that only you understand. You know, personally, I've, I've never had that experience where I've talked and people heard me in another language. But I remember one of my first sermons I gave up in Placerville. I'm standing at the back, you know, and everyone shakes your hand. And, and someone came up and said, you know, thank you so much. That message meant a lot to me. And then was telling me about what my sermon was. And I'm like, I didn't preach that. <laughs> she had heard a completely different sermon, or, or maybe the words that hit her were, taken in a way that I had not meant to say, but that God had used these words that were coming out of my mouth to reach her. And she got a message that she needed to hear, even though it wasn't the message I was planning to preach. And I always thought that was kind of funny, but I guess that's, that's kind of how it works sometimes. You know, we as ministers, we put together these sermons and we write our bullet points and we read our scriptures and then we give the sermon from up here, but what you hear on your side is dependent on you and what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. So I always hope that when I preach a sermon, you might not remember 98% of it, <laughs> but if I say one thing that you remember, one thing that you can take home that has meaning to your life, then I've succeeded at my job. That God has used me for one moment 
to give someone hope, to give someone courage, to give someone strength. That all my job is to be a conduit, to, to stand here and let God and the Holy Spirit do the heavy lifting with the words. And, um, and he definitely did in this story. 3,000 baptized in one go. And then after all this happens, you know, 3,000 new converts in this city, and we get this tiny little paragraph, the scripture for today, a snapshot of what this early church looked like. I'm going to read it. I really like the New Living Translation, and I know it might not match up with what Bibles you guys have here, but it starts in verse 42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And a deep sense of awe came over all of them. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in needs. They worshiped together at the temple each day and met in home for the Lord's Supper and shared meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. I just think it's a great snapshot. You know, all these new people, and, and you have to understand something about the early church, something that we kind of take for granted now. Um, because we have multicultural churches, and I think it's a great thing. We all have different life experiences and we come together, but that wasn't known in the early church. You know, back in those days, you know, the Arabs worshipped here, and the Jews worshipped here, and the Romans worshipped here, and every culture had their own religion, and they kept in their corners. And the Christians were the first time all these people from all these different corners started coming together to worship. And so they didn't have, I mean, I mean, they start dealing with a lot of these issues later on in the book, but they had different upbringings and different traditions, and, and yet they're brought together by this message. And and for this moment, there's peace and there's harmony as, as they're just enjoying being a community and learning what that means, you know? That they had no clue what was coming. And for those of you who, who know biblical history, those of you who know what started happening when the persecutions start, you know, and, and Christians start getting grabbed off to jail and they have to scatter and run for their lives and and years and decades of, of horrible things and miraculous things happening hand in hand as, as people die and people are raised from the dead. I mean, this church had no clue what they were signing up for. But they were doing what they needed to do to prepare. They were being a community. They were loving each other. They were praising God. They were praying. They were studying. Just being together. We are the church. You know, we look back at the early church, not to, to imitate them or, you know, try to copy what they did, because it was a different time, and they had different things that were happening on there, but I like the word reimagine. But there are lessons that we can learn from this early church, this early church that knew a message, they knew the truth, they knew the gospel, and they were excited about it. But they had to decide every step of the way what happens next? And the Holy Spirit is, I mean, he's the hero of this chapter. <laughs> he shows up again and again, helping and healing and guiding and, and teaching and 
as these people struggle to learn and figure out what it means to be a church. The church of people, not a church of buildings, but a church of people from different places and different experiences and different walks of life. The Holy Spirit, every step, oh, mentioned over and over again through all the chapters. So here we are today, and we're learning and we're growing together. And, and one thing I love about the Orange Church is you guys are definitely a community. Um, I've been to my share of churches, you know, that I've been guests at or I've worked at, and, and I love the feeling that I have here of community. Do you guys know how to do that? I was talking to my youth last Sabbath about these verses in, in Acts and, you know, what are the differences and what are the similarities between the early church and our church? And they're like, well, we do potluck. We eat together. That's something we do. And we praise together and we do study together. And there's Bible studies. And, and they were finding all these similarities. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you know, we don't sell everything. Well, no, but, you know, when there's a need, we do fundraisers. And we do yard sales and, you know, we raise money for those who are in need. We, we find, we work together to, to do that, you know, definitely a community. And I just thought that was funny. These are your young people talking about just how we are a church that enjoys spending time together, you know. And I thought I'd share that with you because I thought that was great. So here we, we know the community and you guys have been working on the community but how do we decide what the Holy Spirit wants from us now? You know, this, this phrase, unstoppable force, you know, Pastor David got it from a book that's talking about the Holy Spirit. How the Holy Spirit is this unstoppable force in the universe. Unstoppable force, doing amazing things everywhere it goes, and definitely applies to the Holy Spirit. But it can also apply to a church filled with the Holy Spirit. We can be an unstoppable force here in Orange County, here in the city of Orange, here in this five-block radius, you know, but we need to decide as a church what kind of force do we want to be. You know, if we all run our separate directions, you know, then we're everywhere, but we need to come together as a church and decide what God is calling us to do. What God is calling us to do for each other, what God is calling us to do for, you know, our families, what God is calling us to do for our community, for our nation, for our world, what are we specifically called to do? And so, in some ways, we are exactly like this early church, coming together, praying, and searching for God's guidance. If someone were to write a paragraph about Orange Church right now, you know, someone were to come in, do their research, and write a paragraph summing up what we are as a church, what do you think it would say? <laughs> you know, what would you think it would say? What do you think the highlights would be about our character and about our values? And what would you want it to say? I'm actually going to give you a couple minutes to talk to the person next to you, behind you, somewhere. I don't know if you're here by yourself. You'll just have to join up with a group next to you. But I do want to give you a couple moments to reflect on this, including my youth back there, because I'm going to ask you later. What kind of church do you want us to be known at? In those history books of churches, what do you want the paragraph to say about us? 
I'm looking. I can tell if you're talking or not. It's a great view from up here. You, move. Go talk to her. Okay, now that you're talking to each other, now I want a little bit of feedback back from you. A couple people to be brave and tell me some of the highlights. What do you want our church to be known for? We care. We care. That's a good one. Loving people. Loving people. Huggable. Huggable. I like that one too. Open arms. Open arms. Christ centered. Accepting of all. Small but mighty. I like it. <laughs> These are all wonderful values and, and something that I've, I've heard, you know, behind the scenes in here, that you want to be a church that loves God, that is Christ-centered, that builds on these values, but also loves people, that loves each other. We accept each other where we're at, and we accept the people who come in our doors, who may be different than us, but are also just searching for God as well. And I think that's a wonderful place to start as we're here and we're building our our core beliefs and our mission statement and our values as we look for what the Holy Spirit wants from us. Um, I want to share something for you. I'm winding down on my, my strength. <laughs> so I'm going to wrap this up a little bit quicker than I was planning. But there's a song that I've sung on every stage I've ever been to, at every church I've ever worked at, and every opportunity I have. It's been my, I guess, my theme song for the past 15 years, since the first time I heard it. Um, and for me, it's, it's a prayer, you know, and, and you can actually hear that in the last verse. It's a prayer asking God to lead me. And so we're talking about individual guidance in our own life. We want the Spirit to lead us. But specifically right now, we're talking about as a church. As a church, where does God want to lead us? So I invite you all to close your eyes. And I'm going to sing this song, but I hope you hear it. It's not just my prayer for, for me, but your prayer for yourself and our prayer for our church. Wherever it may lead me, I want to follow you through the valley of the shadow to the mountain's breathless view. If the thousands throng around me, or if they never know my name, I follow you just 
exact the same if it leads me to the desert where your voice seems far away I will still believe you love me and I will listen and I will pray for if the crowds applaud my progress or if I am the critic's choice I will need to know your still small voice Lord I want to be your servant though I don't always know how but you promise to be with me and Lord I need you with me now I need to see Wherever 